A reading from the letter of Paul to the Collegians. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have come to fullness in him, who is the head of every ruler and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a spiritual circumcision by putting off the body of the flesh in the circumcision of Christ. When you were buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him through faith and the power of God, who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive altogether with him. When he forgave us all our trespasses, erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands, he set this aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in it. The word of the Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Imagine this scene with me. The conquering emperor has returned to Rome, the center of the world at the time. and He's been off doing battle against the enemies of the state, and he has been very, very successful. The streets are lined and crowded with swarms of people who are cheering and throwing flowers, celebrating his victory, his glory. And the elites of their enemies have been spared a quick death and are now being displayed in a parade meant to shame them with their utter weakness, their powerlessness before the emperor. And the people cheer louder as the prisoners shuffle in chains. They will no longer be a threat. The emperor's armies are next in line, and their armor has been polished to a blinding shine in the hot sun. Their majesty is undeniable as they march lockstep, the thunder of their feet resounding off the city's main highway. The emperor is last. He is riding in his war chariot. Even his horse is proud and inspires fear and awe. The people are at a frenzy now. It's as if he's a god. In their minds, he is a god. And he has secured the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, which is as good as the peace of the known world. This sort of spectacle where we too have been Roman citizens at the time would be way up there in terms of entertainment. But more importantly, it would completely shape our view of our enemies and our leaders. Everything about the scene was choreographed to inspire awe and fear. Look at what happens to the enemies of Rome. They are utterly weak. Gaze upon the glory that the emperor contains. Now, Paul obliquely hints 
at another vision that is a subversion of this military liturgy I just described. So continue with me in the scene. We, the crowd, are gathered again. But our frenzy has reached such a breaking point that it's almost as if none of us have even drawn a breath and it is utterly silent. The victory march begins on the city's highway and at the front are the ancient enemies that have ensnared the known world since almost the beginning. These enemies have imprisoned the entire world in fear and we are hushed, frozen, as they pass by us, for now we see them in such a weakened state, it is as if they barely exist. They are thin, stooped, broken. There will be no sequel. Sin and death have been smashed so entirely, it's as if they have been ground into dust. The armies of the king follow these hollow prisoners. They too are silent, or so it seems. They are almost imperceptible to our eyes, but as we become somehow impossibly even more breathless, more still, we begin to see them. The six-winged seraphim hover over the ground. They are armored in light, and never before have we seen light that seems so impenetrable. Their commanders, Michael, Raphael, and Gabriel, come next, and we are nearly pushed onto our faces. We have never seen such glory. Our throats catch. We cannot breathe, cannot swallow. Our hearts have either begun beating as one or stopped beating altogether. And the emperor is last. His victory now is beyond the Mediterranean basin. It is beyond global. It transcends even a cosmic victory because it is a victory that exists beyond time itself. The peace that he has achieved is not merely a Roman peace. It is a cosmic peace. And there is not a single thread of the tapestry of his empire that is missing or out of place. As he crests the hill and makes his way into the city in this victory march, every eye is upon him. Where is his war horse? Where is his chariot made of unbreakable iron? Where are the laurel wreaths crowning him the Prince of Peace? This emperor, in the midst of his victory march, is crowned with thorns. And his chariot is a cross. And as he draws nearer, the silence overwhelms us, and suddenly we collectively hear the army of angels. Are they a choir? They are singing ceaselessly, Alleluia, 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 Lord Most High. And it's as if we feel the power of their voices in our chests before we even register their song with our ears. This is what Paul means when he says that the Lord has displayed his enemies in utter shame in his cross. The victory of God is utterly unique because he alone has given himself over to his enemies and in so doing destroyed them.
As John McGuckin says, the coming of the Lord into humanity is precisely to meet it at its most suffering and wounded aspect, its enslavement to death. The humility of God is not a shame, but a source of wonderment and joy that the Lord himself would stoop so mercifully to repair the pain of death. I'd like to try to do two things this morning. The first is to try to place the vocabulary of salvation that I think most of us in this room have and have had for a long time into a grammar that actually stays true to who God is and what he is doing in Christ's incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. And the second briefer point is that I'd like to show you why what is happening to us here each week is so important. Most of us have heard probably countless times about sin and repentance, salvation, and Christ paying the penalty for us that we could not pay. But as Christianity in the West has fractured and much of it severed itself off from the apostolic witness in the church that has maintained that witness, we have effectively lost any sense of grammar. We don't know how to piece together the vocabulary that we have been given, and so we have been left with destructive half-truths. So, in fundamentalist conservative circles in the West, the vocab of sin and salvation is grammatically sorted to show us that we are rotten, no good, garbage people who have, by our smelly existence, angered God. The cross then becomes as clear an image as we can find of God's wrath at us being redirected toward Christ's. And in this scheme, God's victory is destructive. It is a release valve of his anger that has been pent up at our constant screw-up existence. In progressive and liberal circles, on the other hand, the vocab of sin and salvation gets grammatically sorted to show us that we're really not so bad. In fact, the only irredeemable people are those who insist that anyone is bad. God isn't some angry, distant being. He's the person next to you. He looks just like you. And all he wants for you is to keep feeling good about yourself. These are obviously caricatures. But I think if you've been around either of those circles, you might recognize echoes of similar ideas. And what I want to say to you this morning is that these approaches, both of them equally, are not just dead wrong. They are deadly. As I mentioned last week, we cannot begin to talk about sin and salvation if we do not have the doctrine of creation humming in the background of our minds. If we fail to imagine God fundamentally in the words of the psalmist when he says, you are good and you bring forth good, then we will inevitably hear things like, the wages of sin is death, completely wrong. I think a lot of us hear that phrase and assume that it's simply a bigger version of getting a dog and telling it, if you bite or if you poop in my house, you're going to the pound. So then, of course, what happens? The dog bites. The dog poops in the house. And then we have to start thinking to ourselves, well, I don't want to appear weak. I don't want to issue threats and then not follow through, but I also don't want to be a total hardliner. So then we're stuck. Our response then is based on us wanting to save face, either by sticking to our word 
or by being gracious. But when God tells Adam and Eve in the garden not to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die, that is not a threat. It's more like the railway crossing signs that alert you that if you try to cross or stop on these tracks when there's a train coming, it is not going to end well for you. Inevitably, that is reality. When we begin to understand that God created us and everything that is out of nothing, we didn't pre-exist in some matrix-style battery acid, we can begin to see that our existence is rooted in his goodness and grace. It is a pure gift, and that without his grace, we would always inevitably tend back toward non-existence again. When we understand that sin isn't about being dirty, garbage people, but nor is it some self-perception gone awry that requires us to have more self-esteem, when we start to see that the very content of sin is itself death, now we're getting somewhere. The wages of sin is death is not a divine threat. It is a divine revelation about reality. As Father Khaled Anatolios has so masterfully summed up, the point is not merely that it is inappropriate for God to go back on his word, as if God's original word was simply an arbitrary whim to which he must subsequently hold for the sake of maintaining his own consistency. Rather, the word of God's law, when you eat the tree, you will surely die, is true precisely in the sense that it is true to his creative word, true to the most fundamental and ineluctable and radically gracious terms of the relation between God and creation. The relation between God and creation is that all of creation exists in God's own life, and sin is an attempt to cut ourselves off from that life. The resulting death isn't God taking his ball and going home. It's simply the only possible outcome. As Father Khaled again says, the gift of being is not given to the creature in such a way that the creature can then simply walk away with this gift. You hear this? The gift of being is not the kind of gift that you can just walk away from. It is a relational gift. It requires participation. As he says, it is a sharing in the very life of the divine giver. That's what existence is. So here's one more from Father Khaled. Sin not only leads to, but simply consists in the forfeiture of the only being that a creature can have, which is nothing else than its participation in the divine life. You tracking? Sin is to deny the gift of existence. And so, of course, the only other option is death. God is not a petty dad who feels disrespected and so thunders, go to your room. We have got to stop assuming that God goes to war so that he can have victory over his creatures. That scheme always presupposes God's destruction of his creatures. And that, simply put, is not divine victory. It just isn't. It would be utter failure on God's part. God's battle is not lodged with bad people. It is lodged with the sin and death 
that we have chained ourselves to. I've told you before, the choice given to us in our freedom is always only ever between God or not God. And to choose not God is to choose nothingness, non-existence. Father Khaled says it so much better than me. He says, humanity's most fundamental moral choice is to either accept or reject the gift of participation in divine being. As I mentioned to you last week, I believe that the story that Western Christianity has been telling about sin and salvation for some time is not working any longer with our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers and family members. And honestly, it's because it no longer resembles hardly anything of good news. As I said to you last week, the people surrounding us in our city are waiting for us to tell them how wrong they are, how much we look down on them, how much we judge them because we are so much more enlightened. That is not good news. And as I also tried to hint at last week, I get that what we're doing here in the liturgy is bordering on the insane. It's about as kooky as standing over a mass grave of bones and prophesying to them that they should come to life like Ezekiel did. But I remain tenaciously convinced that the people in our city who have rejected Jesus and the gospel haven't yet been presented with the actual strangeness of the truth. They've been handed a can of diet slice and been told, here, you'll love, you love whiskey, you'll really enjoy this. No, more diet slice, please. Our friends need to try a sip of the 23-year Pappy Van Winkle. Can I get an amen? I know we're not a Baptist church. That's why I can use bourbon as an analogy for sharing the gospel. We have to be completely clear in what we do here in the liturgy and what we do with our lives out there that this is not about behavior modification. It is about being snatched back from the brink of destruction by being baptismally buried with Christ in his death-destroying death and then raised with him again, having been made alive together with him. That's what it's about. And here's where we're going to make a drift racer's 90-degree turn into the importance of what is happening here in the liturgy. I get that it's easy to assume that, well, you know, we do such and such in our liturgy because Father Stephen likes incense or ritual or aerobics or whatever it is. I get it. I know that it's weird. I know that you don't chant psalms at work with your coworkers or when you go to a soccer game. I think most of us here have inherited a very American understanding of church as a voluntary society. We get to choose. We can pick it up or put it down. We can come, we can not come. We can go where we want. We can make it look, sound, smell, however we want it to smell so that we can feel what we want to feel. But at the end of the day, it's almost always about how we feel. But the liturgy is not a feeling machine. The parade that I described to you earlier where the angels are in procession and the crucified Christ is glorified in his humility, that happened, yes, once for all on a hill outside Jerusalem. 
but it is an event that exists beyond time. And in the liturgy, we are participating in that victory march. That's why he leads us in and out every week, is because we're being brought up out of time into eternity to participate in his liturgia, his liturgy, his work, his worship. And this liturgia that we are entering into, this work of worship, must tell as much truth as possible. And the only way to do that as human beings in God's world is to act ritually, to live sacramentally, to be brought into the victory of God by way of the sacraments of his church, his very body. As Paul says, to be, to be buried with Christ in baptism. And now here to share in the one cup of blessing that we bless, to participate in his body and blood. Friends, it is here that we are being trained to recognize the greatest king of all kings is a crucified, humiliated man. That's going to take practice to get used to. And so we have to be here week after week because it is here that we learn to receive the gift of God himself as he gives himself to us in the bread and wine at the altar. This is the place of participation in the divine life because it is a participation in the true worship that Christ alone offers to his Father. It is here that we are given life by accepting the gift of participation in the divine being. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.